Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Sosh. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Everybody's Getting a Netflix Show Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. I thought you were going to do it sort of like a cheerleader. <laughs> we, did, we did earlier this week. We did the cheerleader one. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, by the way, friend of the program, Steve Horowitz and I taking a walk around Manhattan the other day, getting a little uh, bite to eat. And uh, he, he cringed, but in the spirit in which it was offered, really enjoyed the open. That's what the we're going. Br- That's the exactly bravery, the two yeah. emotions I want. <laughs> and, and I said to him, we knew it would be cringeworthy, but- I had also said, like, from the beginning, I want to do it in some sort of, like, what something spirit, how do we, and we, you figured it out, and you gave a good one. So if everybody who listens to the podcast has the same reaction of, oh, oh, okay, you know, Success. I'm okay yeah. with it, because, yeah, I am not, uh, I am not so sensitive to, know, like, we can't laugh at, at ourselves. So Agreed, agreed. Yes. Maybe they can, maybe one day we'll have our own Netflix show, because everybody else does, right? Yeah, it's 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 amazing the the, the trend that I, I think you and I would probably agree. It felt like it started kind of way back with Hard Knocks has hit overdrive in the past twelve months. The, the success that F one had with its Netflix show Drive to Survive has led uh, both the PGA Tour and professional tennis tours to kind of order up their own versions of the show. It's it's very clear, Scott, that sports leagues and sports teams see an opportunity to reach an audience that they might not otherwise be reaching in this new world of, of very popular documentary slash reality TV shows. Can I give you a homework assignment for when this hits, this podcast hits? Our colleague Jacob Feldman put out a great thread acknowledging that, of course, Drive to Survive has had some impact on fans watching F1. But he also said there, there were a litany of things in motion already that may also be significant contributing factors to the popularity surge. That it isn't it isn't the simple narrative. Oh, it's all Netflix. Like it's the Netflix effects. It's it's the reality show. Um, so can I ask you to re up that like at the top of the sport? Yeah, for sure. And yours, and I'll retweet and the whole thing. People should take a look at what Jacob wrote 
because he brought up some very good points. But also, it's not just pro sports teams and leagues. Uh, I was fascinated in the piece that our colleague Daniel Libet did on Cheer, which is a, a show on Netflix. It's about Navarro College and Trinity Valley Community College, really based about the cheerleading program. And you'd think when these things take off and they're wildly successful, who knew where it was coming out of, you would think that the folks at Navarro would be flush with cash. Like it would be raining dollar bills down on this small college in Texas because their cheerleading program is getting all this attention. Well, I know you know the answer, but you want to tell everybody, guess what's the grand total of what they got and what they will receive in the future uh, for their partaking in this series? Yeah, it sounds like both Trinity and Navarro got thirty thousand dollars of uh of, of site well, yeah, filming. Once again, thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, and again, that number obviously does not encapsulate everything that they're getting. It, the The show is a tremendous, essentially long, long commercial for the cheerleading programs that both of these small JUCOs in Texas have put together. You and I think that. I, yeah, we. It's, it's funny. My partner has watched uh, both of the seasons, and, and kind of over the over my shoulder, yeah. Uh, yeah. I watched a little bit of it. I, I have, as you know, kind of an interest in in the business side of cheerleading uh, because of work that, that that our company has done on on Varsity, which is a a, a Bain Capital owned brand that is essentially a monopolistic force in cheerleading. They own the events, they own the apparel, they own the licensing, they own the governing body. They do kind of everything in cheerleading. I think it's a fascinating story. So I was kind of keeping an, an ear and an eye out for, for different ways in which Varsity, the company kind of in, in meshed with the show, uh, which was honestly not as much as I was expecting. But yes, I watched part of it. It's the the, the coach at Navarro. Her name is escaping me right now. Uh, she comes Monica off. Aldama. Or, Mon- Monica, yeah. Yeah, she yep. comes off as a as a star. There's no question that this is a, and I think this is the reason why a lot of these groups don't get paid. I think this is standard in reality television. A lot of these people don't get paid that much because the thing that they're getting is the opportunity to capitalize on what comes after the show, right? And that well, is I think, well, Monica, Monica is capitalizing. She's got 700,000 Instagram followers. She's got a best-selling book out. But partially, I would I would think due to COVID, the school is not capitalizing. You know, we think of sports as as the front porch and it brings people, maybe you'll get more people applying. Uh, the folks uh, at the school who spoke to Dan said something like, yeah, I think I know three or four people who <laughs> applied to the school because of the show. But overall, we have not seen an increase in uh, in applications or registrations. I mean, so uh, the trickle down is, you know, trickle down economics. It ain't trickling down here. This made me think of a story that we did at Sportico uh, five or six months ago about safety, the, the Disney movie about the Clemson football player. Uh, and, and I dove into kind of what Clemson got paid during that. And it turns out it was nothing. And, and they gave the, the use of their logo, their marks, their uniforms, filming at their stadium. They gave a lot of that stuff largely for free because they understood kind of the downwind benefits here was that this is a, 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 a program that's going to be seen by a lot of people, a lot of kids, a lot of people who are maybe not necessarily college football fans. And if they come away with a feeling that, oh, wow, yeah, the, the thing I know about Clemson is that they have a great college football program and they supported that kid when he, when he took on his brother, um, that that's actually extremely valuable as well. And, and, and it'll be just to, to widen this out again, Scott, I'm really interested to see what, what happens with this PGA Tour Netflix show, what happens with this tennis Netflix show. There are ways, and you mentioned Jacob's Thread there, there are definitely ways in which I think the F1 show has really helped F1. I think there are also ways in which, and I'll use it, my focus group of five or six of, of the friends I know who, who have watched 
Drive to Survive and then tuned into F1 races, a lot of them feel as though the telecast is actually a letdown. That the thing that they came to love about F1, the sport, was kind of the back-end drama for racers at Williams who are finishing races in 18th and 16th place. When you watch a telecast, nobody's talking about those guys, right? You're talking a lot about Lewis Hamilton. You're talking a lot about Max Verstappen, the people who are in first or second. And these shows do a really good job of highlighting, and Hard Knocks did this as well, did a really good job of highlighting kind of the underlying emotional stories, a lot of the people that don't get talked about on the telecast. And it can be a letdown sometimes when you decide to take in the actual product and realize, oh, it's actually not as compelling in the way that I want it to be. Uh, relative to the to, to the reality show. Yeah, people want to see the things they don't see on the regular broadcast. And Hard Knocks, my favorite thing, and I know this is a bit macabre, but my favorite thing, because you don't often see it, is you know what the Turk is in football? I mean, a, a supreme talent like you probably has never had a visit from the Turk. But when the Turk comes and you know that's a bring your playbook to the meeting, you're, you're being cut. Seeing those conversations and seeing how it's done, people want to see that. And I think it, you'll see some great behind-the-scenes stuff in golf and tennis, whether it's the training or... Or the, or the meals or the travel. I think you can get some really interesting things. And that's what people want. And kudos to, and I always say, hearken back to MTV Cribs. They understood, the folks at MTV understood that people wanted more. They wanted to be closer to the athletes. They wanted to see behind what, what their cars they were driving, what their homes looked like. I think the first pro athlete, and I don't even think it has to be Megastar, but the first pro athlete that decides to live stream the post game, his or her post game, I'm talking in locker room, I'm, and I'm not sure what the rights allow for, I know, but the the walk out of the arena, the signing of the autographs, the drive home, the conversations, the trying to get to sleep, the, oh, I got to email my coach, uh, all of that, that's what people want to see now. Take us closer. And But we were talking about- We, we saw that real quick in, in in the aftermath of the NBA finals last year. Right? Antetokounmpo yeah, and his yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah. His call with his brother, yep. the going to get uh, Chick-fil-A the next day with the, with the, with the trophy yep. in, in, in the car. Yes, and it, and it was a sensation because you're right. They're, they're, people are clamoring not just to see these stars when they're performing, but to also get a sense of what they're like and what their conversations are like off the court. All right, I wanted to take a second because like ne- that Netflix deal- with cheer and the college is like 30,000. That may be one of the, you know, the great deals ever cut. And I was just wondering if, if you were familiar and how many of our listeners would be um, familiar with what's often called the best sports deal ever made, the Ozzy and Daniel St. Silver St. deal. Louis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. So if yeah. they don't know, like, yes, the ABA when they were, when it was uh, sucked up by the NBA, Ozzy and Daniel Silna, they own the St. Louis team. And the spirits of course were not absorbed into the NBA. So they had the choice. They could take a payment at the time. But the Silner brothers said, you know what? Why don't we keep any a piece, a sliver of future NBA broadcast revenue, right? And by the way, that'll be in perpetuity. So over the years, the Silner brothers collected some $300 plus million for a team that never got absorbed into the NBA. And that ended, of course, in 2014, because we all know what happened for NBA broadcast rights. And the league stepped in and cut a big check. Because they were like, we need to end this. Like, we we cannot continue in <laughs> perpetuity giving these guys this money. So uh, it just it just sparked it in my head when I was reading about what was going on with Netflix and that's Navarre a better and Trinity. Deal, to be yeah, that's still a better deal. <laughs> yes, yeah, still deal. a better deal. But uh, in the pantheon, you know, at least it it, it sparked memories for me uh, of what of what a really good sports deal would look like. Uh, the jury remains out, Mister Novi Williams, on whether Sinclair is going to have a really good deal with its sports RSNs, the Bally RSNs. Um, 
you know, it looked like they might default on debt. Uh, Now it looks like Sinclair is going to start a direct-to-consumer service with the NBA and the NHL. And of course, they've got some MLB. Um, Is this the new life? Is this new life for Sinclair? And would you pay what it, what at least Anthony Krupe tells me it's going to pencil out for you to get this direct to consumer service? Yeah, it's funny. This is, it's such a huge, the, the, the changing nature of the, the regional sports network business is such a huge part of the sports business world right now. I, I'd say it's a, it ranks certainly in the top 10 of, of biggest kind of trendy storylines happening in our industry right now. And I think a lot of this, and maybe I'm wrong about this. I think a lot of this is actually lost on your standard NBA or NHL fans. I think a lot of them don't even realize necessarily that 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 that, that Sinclair and through the the Bally RSNs, the, the twenty plus that it purchased previously owned by Fox, bought through Disney. I don't think a lot of them realize that the the the, the big push here by this company now is a direct to, to consumer streaming service where you don't necessarily need a cable subscription to get it. This is depending on who you ask, Scott, the thing that's going to save Sinclair or kind of the beginning of the end for the entire model. Uh, but but you're right. In the past couple of weeks, they've struck deals with the NBA, the NHL. Uh, those are huge things, right? This is two of the three main leagues that these RSNs get their rights from. Uh, if they can launch with the NBA and NHL local rights in a, in a direct-to-consumer streaming platform in, in cities around the country, um, that's a business model that I think a lot of people thought was were skeptical about in two or three years ago. Um, but but you're right, the, the price here, uh, twenty a little over $20 is kind of the back of the envelope math that, that Anthony Krupe broke out. It's three times more than than ESPN Plus for uh, obviously a, a significantly smaller library of live sports rights. But depending on the city you live in, uh, it may be all you need, right? If you live in Detroit and you want to see the Tigers and you also want to see the Pistons and you care about the Red Wings, it, it, in cities like that where you can maybe get all three of those uh, in one fell swoop, $20 might be cheap. I don't know. I'm, it's it's going to be fascinating to see kind of what the ramifications are here. Yeah, if it pencils out to $20 a month, and and I believe Anthony used the term Goldilocks scenario, you could have as much as almost, you know, uh, a million subscribers, or it could be lower. But either way, the price point came out to about 20 bucks a month per subscriber. And the point you make is, all right, well, you're fine if you like just your locals. I don't know many sports teams or sports fans, rather, who just want to see local. Like you like to see some national sports. So uh, absent that cable service uh, in the uh, in probably the coup de grace of Anthony's piece, he said that, you know, you have to go up and put an antenna <laughs> up on your roof if you want to. And this little nugget, uh, an American dies from a fall from a roof every 3.4 days. Now, I don't know if that's gutter cleaning or putting up antennas or what. Way a creepy classic. Why? Why? Anthony does not answer why they are all crawling around their roofs. I do not know. But. Um, yeah, you mentioned the price. I was like 20 ESPN plus seven bucks a month. Disney bundle comes out to 14. That's ESPN plus Disney plus Hulu Peacock about 10 bucks a month. Like, I don't know. You know me. I'm still the fuddy duddy dude. I'm a believer in the cable bundle because I get such a wide swath. I, you know, I get HGTV for somebody who wants to watch that. I'm getting my YouTube for the little guy from my focus group of one. I get enough of the sports and I don't even pay for the, for the advanced tier. Like every now and then I'm like flicking on all of a sudden I've got college hockey. I've got all my locals. I can see it on TNT, ESPN. There's plenty for me to watch and plenty for the family to watch as well. So I'm glad you mentioned that because the the way I think about this is that there are certainly a, a lot of people out there for whom rooting for sports teams just means rooting for the local teams. I think that's kind of an archaic 
version of fandom. And I think most of the people for whom that's true, who are only interested in, in when the local teams are playing, I think a lot of those people are probably the older sports fans. And they're also, I would argue, probably the least likely to ditch their cable subscription in favor of a, a Bally sports uh, direct-to-consumer streaming-only platform. I, I do think that that the people for whom streaming services and cutting the cord, the sports fans for whom that is really alluring, are also the sports fans for whom being able to see just local sports is actually not the way that they want to consume it. Um, so I will be interested to see kind of if this service does launch, if I'm right about that, and if the people for whom this is an alluring service are probably still going to want to get it through the, the, the standard cable bundle, and the people for whom streaming only sports is really alluring are going to look at this and say, no, I actually want to be able to watch any game I want in any city I want. And as a result, there, there's other platforms out there that are a better fit for my tastes. Yeah. New York Times was prescient with an article recently about how sports leagues are trying to find Gen Z where they are. And that that was sort of on uh, on the, the gaming platforms. And uh, following that, guess what? Microsoft buys Activision Blizzard 68.7% billion dollar deal. And I loved my Twitter feed in the, I would say, four to five minutes after the first headline, because it was just one word responses. Yowza, holy, wow, who, wow, yeah, you know, whatever. It, it was just like, everybody's like, yow, that was uh, some deal. And then you had, I love the quick analysis, because quickly, I think you saw what perhaps the companies would have loved. This is about the metaverse, right? It's Microsoft focusing on the metaverse and the future and this and that. And then I think as people processed or more people chimed in or maybe the narrative changed a little bit, it's like, no, 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 no. This is about gaming being kind of the, the new social. Like gaming is where people are at. And I, I talk about the, the focus group of one. My, my guy, he's very happy now because he's on the Xbox all the time and now he's going to get some Activision Blizzard you know, stuff. Uh, I, I pay my, what, what, what do I call it? What do they call it at Microsoft? It's like um, an, a gold pass. Right, whatever it is, sure. I, th yeah. I think it's the gold pass is like seventeen bucks a month, and every month I see it pop up, and I get a little annoyed, and then I'm like, well, you know what? For if you did dollar cost average, the amount of time he did that versus I watch TV and pay my cable. Of course, I do get my Wi-Fi, you know, my broadband through there, so you know, a little little different comparison. But if you dollar cost average it. And he's a good student. It's not like the kid's always on the Xbox, although, you know, he is. But he's got the headset on. He's talking. He does Xbox on with phone and iPad while FaceTiming. And he's got all his buddies and they're all yelling. They're all screaming. And whether it's Fortnite or whether it's Call of Duty. Yes, I let him play Call of Duty. Uh, it's where these guys gather. And I will never forget the time. And I think I told you this at the time where he said to me, Dad, uh, can I stay up a little later or whatever? Because I want to go to a concert tonight. And I'm like, what are you talking? Where are you? What do you mean you're going to a concert? Like in my mind, I'm like, you're going to the garden? You're going to the Prudential Center? We're like, where, what do you mean you're going to a concert? No, no, no. In Fortnite, Marshmallow is having Marshmallow. a concert. Yeah, Marshmallow yeah. is having a concert. And the number of people, all his friends were going. They all did it. They all talked about it. And I said, this is for real. That is why Microsoft spent $68.7 billion on Activision Blizzard. Yeah, and I think part of the surprise or, or the, the people who were saying, wow, I think they also recognize probably what this means for the next 18 months. I, I saw some people who are way smarter than me saying that this deal feels like the, the Disney Fox 
tie up from two years ago, right? Which which kind of shook the industry, caused a whole lot of consolidation in other parts of the media world. I think a lot of people look at this Microsoft Activision deal and say, okay, now we're probably in for another 18 months on the gaming side of massive consolidation as companies try to bring a lot of these games under one roof. For, for the gamers out there, Microsoft obviously owns Xbox. They have, you know, they're publishers of Minecraft and Halo. Now they're bringing on Activision, which has a number of games, including Call of Duty, Overwatch, Candy Crush. It's bringing a lot of these games into one ecosystem. And as we know, because we, we, we see it in movies and TV all the time, there's a lot of valuable IP here. And I would not be shocked to see some of the, we we're already seeing it with Halo actually, but but a lot of the other Activision IP starting to be turned into movies, starting to be turned into licensed, more licensed goods, starting to be turned into TV shows. I think there's a lot of opportunity there as well. So I think we're all of these topics we've talked about today, Scott, are kind of all part of the same conversation, which is meeting younger people and future power consumers where they are right now. And the truth is that they're, watching shows streaming and they're doing a lot of gaming and and there's tremendous value uh, for companies all up and down the ecosystem in in buying into those kind of direct ways to talk to kids like like your son and if it closes uh and it does get approval you'll have the third largest gaming company behind Tencent and Sony and what we didn't talk about was sort of the impetus in this and it was sort of the uh all the allegations of frat boy culture over mm-hmm. at Activision Blizzard, yeah. and the stock had dropped thirty percent. Um, I guess Microsoft said, "Hey, you know, this is a palatable number, a palatable deal. It's a good time to jump in, and maybe we can get this done." And sure enough, they did. And the news that surprised me, because a lot of the finger pointing at Activision had been had been directed at Bobby Kotick, the CEO. And like when I first heard the news, I'm not gonna lie, I thought it would have been all right. This is done, and Bobby Kotick is out. He's out. Um, yeah. But he's in. You know, Bobby Kotick is. He'll be the CEO. You know, after the transaction. Um, he'll be reporting to Phil Spencer, the CEO of Microsoft Gaming. And I just wonder how long that lasts. You know, is this sort of a, all right, let's get it up and going? Is it sort of a defiance? I wasn't going to get pushed out or, you know, a lot of this from the sports side, by the way, you know this better than I do. Like the personal relationships Bobby Kotick had are, are the reason why a lot of regular pro sports team owners invested in Overwatch. And it was his relationship that threw them in, right? That's exactly right. And and Bobby Bobby is Activision Blizzard, right? He took this company when it was essentially dead in the water and made it a a, a many, many billion times over one of the biggest uh one of the biggest publishers in, in gaming. And yes, Scott, when when you look at Overwatch League and Call of Duty League, the the the, the franchised esports leagues, there are a lot of people from the traditional sports world, the crafts, the cronkies, the aquilinis, the Wilpons, the Wolfs, uh, all of them, you know, opened cut 20, 30 million dollar checks to join those leagues. The conversations we had when they did it, they weren't necessarily buying into Overwatch as the as the future esport of uh, that was going to be super popular. They were buying into a partnership with Bobby because they believed that that if this didn't work, Bobby would have his finger on the pulse and would be able to bring them in on whatever the next thing is that that does work. And that's there's clearly some truth to that. So so who knows how long Bobby sticks around? But there's a whole lot of the Activision Blizzard business ecosystem that is there largely because it believes in Bobby and maybe believes a little bit less in the specific brand or the specific game that they're invested in. All right. And speaking of perhaps uh, uh, bad behavior or black eyes, Warriors part owner, Chamath Palihapitiya, uh, maybe regrets doing a podcast <laughs> where he was asked about the Uyghurs in China. And in essence, he responded, I don't care. Like the line, and even when press was like, wait, 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 you mean like, you personally don't care or you think people don't care? He's like, yeah, I don't care. 
like the line, what, what was it that he's like, my line threshold, it's like below yeah, that. Below that. Yeah. yeah. It's below the line of my caring. And um, like clearly the podcast host was like, oh, that's disappointing. And needless to say, um, he he, uh, he did come out and clarify a bit of, of what he meant. And, you know, all human rights abuses are bad. But at a time when the NBA has had a number of issues with China, probably would have been better had Shamath not been out there with that comment. Yeah, so he owns 10%, a non-voting, totally passive stake in the Warriors, one of the most valuable franchises in the NBA. And you're absolutely right, Scott, and you saw it immediately. A, a lot of the people, politicians in particular, who have been extremely critical of the NBA in the past 18 months because of how they believe the league kind of bent over backwards to accommodate the Chinese government in the wake of Daryl Morey's uh, tweets uh, those people just came right back out again and 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 were extremely critical immediately they they made it very clear that they kind of view this as just yet another NBA investor or someone tangential to the NBA business who is willing to kind of overlook a lot of what's going on in China, probably because it's good for his own business. And, and the Warriors very quickly were stepped up to, to say that they disagreed with what he had said and, and made it clear that he's not a day-to-day operations. He's not involved with the team from a day-to-day basis. But just another kind of another little piece to the the puzzle of what has been an extremely tenuous relationship between the NBA and China um, and, and just highlights how I think how thorny it's going to be moving forward as well. I don't think this is a story that's going to die out anytime soon either. All right. On the positive side, let's talk about it and close it out with the Premier Hockey Federation, formerly the NWHL. Some news out that the teams are receiving a $25 million investment from the current owners. So they will put that back into the teams, it'll go to salaries and healthcare. Salaries more than double to seven hundred. Oh, that'll be the uh, the the uh, salary cap for each team will go up to seven hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, up six hundred k from just two years ago. That is some pretty impressive step up uh, in owners and banking on women's sports. And we have seen our friends over at the Sports Innovation Lab, Josh Walker and Angela Ruggiero. They put out the fan project where it was data-driven, showing you why now is the time to make investment in women's sports and why there is ROI. And I think about the volleyball championship being shown on ESPN and drawing like 1.2 million viewers, which is better than a lot of core four sports would ever do. Um, so they're really putting, literally putting their money where their mouth is and reinvesting in the players. Uh, and, and we're going to see if you can get some ROI on women's sports. Yeah, I love this. Again, I think putting your money where your mouth is exactly the right way to frame this. There are people, advocates for women's sports that say that if it just had the backing at the start, it could grow and and become popular at the same trajectory that, that some men's sports have seen. And this is a good way to test that. These are the the owners of uh, of the six or eight teams in the league. Uh, the, the league has made a, a point to kind of get to private ownership and they're at that 100%. All the teams are privately owned at this point. That's a big milestone jumping the 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 salary cap there Scott from 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 150k to 750 that is a huge jump right that's a massive jump in 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 2 years um so yeah we're going to see i think very quickly if this is a uh, if this is exactly bears out in, in 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 the way the numbers generate but i think this is awesome and i would like to see more not just women's sports certainly yes women's sports but also more kind of smaller less popular professional sports leagues seeing this kind of investment and this kind of doubling down from the people that have put the most money in and you know what make get a good look from the established sports unions and players 
We've heard Michelle Roberts, who recently departed as the executive director of the NBPA, and we've seen Tony Clark talk about their members wanting equity in the league, like real partnership. If we're partners here, uh, let, let me have an ownership stake in the appreciation of the assets. Well, one thing they're going to do as part of this is that each team is putting 10% of equity into a player pool. So it'll allow the athletes to actually share in the growth of the league. That may be a model that uh, that others are going to look at. And do Huge. I think we're going to, yeah, do I think we're going to see a day where NBA players or MLB players have equity in the teams of the leagues? No, I don't. Do I think it's something players are more and more cognizant of and will try to be figuring out creative ways to share rather than just, all right, I'll take 50% of basketball-related revenue, BRI, or 50% of HRR, hockey-related revenue. Yeah, I think they're going to get way more creative and try and figure out. Um, but at a time when owners are on the hook for a season or two being played with no fans because of COVID and the capital risk, um, I think it's going to be really hard to devise a system that will cover all those bases. I don't, I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll deal with something again where perhaps... Uh, you know, there's a, a pool of money set aside and we'll see which way the money goes. And if it's if you exceed, then you get it. If you don't, you give it back. Um, I don't know. But I just think it's interesting that we are seeing a real live mechanism by which players in a professional sports league will share in the growth of the league. That yeah, is something and, to be applauded. And, and, and to point out how important this investment is alongside that equity piece. Two years ago, when the salary cap was one hundred and fifty thousand the average salary in the league was $7,500. There's not a woman playing in that in that league that doesn't need another job, probably needs to dedicate a lot more of her time to that other job because the hockey is only paying her $7,500 $7, a year. Now we jump up to a $750,000 salary cap. Now women are making average salary $37,000 a year. It's not a ton of money, but being able to at least empower them financially more and more on the hockey side also probably means they dedicate more time to their own training, dedicate more time to their own promotion. They're able to make this a bigger part of their life financially and from a time and hour standpoint. And that just grows serves to grow the game even more. So so if you're empowering these athletes to kind of help share in the way that they boost the league, but you're also paying them closer and closer to what is, you know, a full-time job salary to help work on the league, then I think you're you're kind of lifting both things simultaneously. It would take about 30 seconds for friends of the program Paul and Michael Rabel to text or call me saying, <laughs> "We're doing that. Why didn't you mention us?" So Paul and Michael, yes, it is akin to sort of the change from MLL to PLL, where the players to get equity uh, in the league, they are investors, uh, stakeholders in the league. But like you said, it, it's it's about them being able to focus on that as a job and not sort of use it as a sideline or a moonlight gig. That's that's the difference. That's what these leagues are working towards. And uh, I'm curious to see not only how it works out here, what sort of revenue growth, how the salaries continue to go up, but how those distributions work and how those players make their money. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Podcast Network.